just before you start listening to this podcast, a reminder that we have a special subscription offer. You can get 12 issues of The Spectator for £12, as well as a £20 Amazon voucher. Go to spectator.co.uk forward slash voucher if you'd like to get this offer. Hello and welcome to Women of Balls, where I, Katie Balls, talk to today's trailblazers. Today I'm delighted to be joined by Lynn Barber, the journalist. Barbara is famous for her frank and often searing prose. She has won not one but six press awards. She's also written a memoir detailing her relationship as a teen with an older man. It was later made into a film adaptation, An Education, starring Carrie Mulligan. However, Barbara is best known for her interviews. Over the years, she has spoken to a variety of public figures from all walks of life, from the Chapman Brothers to Marianne Faithfull to Katie Price, a.k.a. Jordan, to Jimmy Savile. Will Self has described her approach as starting from a position of really disliking people and then compelling them to win you over. That hasn't always gone to plan. The Chapman brothers are said to have suggested after their interview with Barbara that they would kill her if they ever saw her again. These days, Barbara at 75 now works freelance. Writing for The Spectator last year, she detailed how she had been let go by the Sunday Times magazine, suggesting there had only been a matter of time given that the magazine editor didn't seem to like reading. So thank you very much for joining us today, Lynn. Uh, we are recording from your home in Highgate. Now, before we get to the various things I mentioned, on this podcast, we like to start by rewinding the hands of time and talking a little bit about what you were doing before you became a journalist. Right. So you grew up in southwest London. I grew up in Twickenham. My parents brought me up to pass every possible exam and win scholarships and go to Oxford, which I did do. And that was temporarily buggered up when I fell in love with this really uncertain suitable man who wanted to marry me but anyway I did go to Oxford and you just mentioned briefly there but you've written about it at length the relationship with with that man it's the film and education and I also wrote a book on it yes and that I suppose was sort of the only event in my (laughs) in my young life Um, for (laughs) listeners I suppose who aren't aware of that event you met a man who at the time you believed was called Simon Goldman but as you got to know him it seems that not all was what it seemed oh no it absolutely wasn't I mean a his age was mysterious I think he said he was 26 or something but various things he said made me realize he was older than that and then I mean, it took a while, but I noticed that there were shops that we couldn't go back to where presumably you'd bounce a cheque. And one shop, one bookshop owner actually said to me, you tell that boyfriend of yours that he owes me, blah, blah, blah. So I sort of realised he was a bit of a crook. I didn't quite realise how much of a crook. And um, he groomed my... I mean... I was 16, he was, whatever, 27-ish. He sort of groomed my parents the way a paedophile does in that he made my parents very sort of keen on him. And they were always saying, oh, well, their line eventually, when he proposed to me, was sort of, oh, well, you don't need to go to Oxford, you can marry him. And that was a terrible betrayal, or it felt like it. But And then I found out he was married anyway, multiple times, I think. So um, so then I did go to Oxford, and that was the end of my big adventure. <laughs> Had you not found out, do you think your life would look very different today? Do you yes. Do you think you would have took your parents' advice there? Actually, I think I would have chickened out of marrying him. I think it, you know, I wouldn't have actually gone through with it, but it might have got worse than it did. 
But anyway, that was all fine. And then at Oxford, I met David, who became my husband, and went into journalism, but a sort of odd way. I worked for Penthouse magazine for seven years, which was lovely, actually. I mean, it was just fun, and... I didn't encounter any sexism at all. They were all really friendly. And for listeners who aren't aware of Penthouse oh, magazine, yes, okay. is it fair to describe that? I don't, how would you put it? It had a soft porn angle to yes, it? Yes, well, he, they wouldn't have said that. It, it was England's <laughs> yeah. answer to Playboy was what how you build it, you know. And as uh, of course, you probably don't even know what Playboy was, but Playboy made up for the skin content by having terribly posh, long, pretentious articles on the arts or on interviews with people. And Penthouse did that too. And, for instance, sent me to interview Salvador Dali, Gore Vidal, various sort of high-powered people while I was working for Penthouse. So it's a very old career. But anyway, that's what I did for seven years. And you rose there from editorial assistant to deputy editor. Yes. Well, the odd thing was I was number four out of four people when I joined. And I was still number four, but out of 300 people when I left, sort of thing. So the magazine was expanding and doing very well. And was it around that time, or using your, I suppose, some of the things you had learnt there that you wrote how to improve your man in bed yes the there's a photographer terrible sort of i better not say scuzzy he might still be alive anyway as sort of dubious photographer who suddenly announced me one day he was israeli and he spoke very bad english he said uh, i am now publisher lynn you write book here is i think it's 500 pounds which sounded like a lot of money actually so I said, oh, OK, and wrote how to improve your man in bed. And interestingly, the other day at dinner, I met Antonia Phillips, who was married to Martin Amos, and she said she was a great fan of my book, How to Improve Your Man in Bed. So I now have this image of Martin Amos having been subjected <laughs> to all this improvement <laughs> many years ago. Anyway. Do you receive royalties from that book when it's sold? No, that was a great tragedy that I signed it all over to him and didn't. And actually it became an international bestseller for years because as soon as one country you know suddenly Portugal would be able to publish it or Brazil would publish it or Poland could publish it so it went on being brought out in different countries for a long time not to my benefit but the only benefit was that I then on the back of that got a big 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 advance for a second book which is completely worthless book but I mean I I got the money somehow and then from Penthouse magazine you eventually went on to go and and focus on what I spoke about in the introduction which is interviews but you you had your children do you have a gap to have your children oh yeah a long one five years what I think of as the playgroup years and then and I don't know what I thought oh and I wrote quite a serious book about Victorian naturalists in that time and then just by the luckiest of chance, somebody I'd worked with at Penthouse said that he was joining a new colour supplement, the Sunday Express magazine, and could I come and do interviews for them? And again, it, you know, it just fell into my lap because I didn't think I'd have had the initiative to actually go looking for a job. You know, it just sort of came along at the right time. And that was a lovely job too. I did very well. 
And from there, you went on to go to the Independent on Sunday. Yes. Uh, where you quickly won the nickname Demon Barber. Yes. Um, <laughs> for what perhaps your unforgiving uh, at times interviews. I was wondering, how would you uh, describe your interview style? Because lots of people have described it. Some who had been the subject of your interviews in, in less favourable terms. Yes, well, part of the trouble is that actually I do a lot of very favourable interviews where I rave about somebody like Margaret Hodge or something, you know. But the ones that stick in people's memory are the Harriet Harman, the Marion Faithful, the... Um, yeah, I'm looking at my notes where I have yeah. quotes from the two you just mentioned. Yes, yeah, so Rafa Nadal, you know. And so... In terms of how often I was hard on people, it probably was only sort of one interview in ten. But those are the ones that people remember. And did you ever have, um, I suppose, editors asking you to tone it down at all or go as hard when, when it came to those? And, and as I say, I accept they're not the norm of what you were doing. Yeah, I don't think that, I don't think I did at The Independent, but oddly enough, just recently I have. Because Graydon Carter, do you know, who edited Vanity Fair, I worked for Vanity Fair for a while, has just started a, an online magazine called Airmail or something. And he asked if I'd do some interviews for him. And he did say something like, but you'll have to be nice to people then. And I thought, oh, I'm not sure, you know. <laughs> I don't want to have to go into an interview so pre-committed to being nice. But on the other hand, the sort of people we were talking about were people I I could be nice about, you know. What do you think makes for a good interview? Obviously, I'm asking too late for it to work in this podcast, but I just just (laughs) think you're good. You've got clear (laughs) questions. Because what I can't stand in an interview is people who want it to be a sort of two-way chat and don't particularly have any questions. Yeah, Uh, really like the sound of their own voice. Yes, and uh, anyway, well, obviously, a sort of nosiness, a curious. You know, curiosity is a big thing. And then trying to keep the energy level up so that, uh, I mean, not too sort of abruptly, but sort of shooing people along from when they're getting boring, you know. And one that, I mean, I hope that my best interviews do reveal something of of somebody's character. I think that's important. Which of the interviews you've done are, are you the most proud of, or do you think were the best interviews that you've done before before we get onto some of the ones which perhaps the they were less ones. happy with? Uh, well, actually, often it's ones that were not spectacularly... I mean, one I'm very proud of, but it's not a spectacular read, was Muriel Spark. And the reason I'm proud of it was it was so difficult to get anything from her that even though I didn't get anything amazing, it was a lot more than anyone had got. And slightly the same with the artist Rachel Whiteread. You know, she hadn't given anything. So, so the ones I'm proud of are not necessarily the best reads. The one I'm sort of fondest of was Rudolf Nureyev. When I realised in retrospect he was he was dropping hints that he was dying of AIDS and I was steadfastly ignoring them. I mean, God knows why. But it was just a very moving sort of interview and he was talking about the past a lot. And anyway, that was a great one. Can't, can't offhand... Well, you know, Salvador Dali as my first interview was quite good. <laughs> <laughs> you started from a high bar. Yeah. <laughs> now, I mentioned in the introduction the Chapman brothers. Yes. And I was wondering, isn't... 
clearly it was an interview that they particularly enjoyed. Yeah. <laughs> well, no, Even though you have written a lot about the arts and, and got on... To- I've always liked interviewing artists. And Can you talk the- us through how you get a death threat from an interview? This was... It was Jake Chapman who made the death threat. Well, because they... Part of their shtick was that they were outrageous, they were shocking everyone, they were anti-bourgeois, they were terrible rebels and things. And then Dinos has a slightly deformed finger. And I said, oh, you've got a deformed finger, which actually was quite relevant because they were doing these figures of deformed children, you know. And Jake thought this was incredibly rude. And he was sort of huffing away, sort of, how dare you ask something like that? I don't think Dino's minded particularly. But Jake just sort of stormed about and said, you know... And then he said, if you mention that in the article, which, of course, I did, um, we, you know, I'll kill you. I thought, you know, I wouldn't sort of randomly say to anyone, sort of, oh, you've got a deformed finger. But, I mean, it was relevant in this thing. And uh, But oddly enough, actually, I've sort of made peace because, oh, it's a bit boring, but I go, I'm a keen bird watcher, and I went to a bird watching place in Trinidad, which Dinos is very keen on himself. So, so we now have uh, polite conversations. <laughs> Birds have bonded you. Yes, and continuing with those interviews that perhaps the the subject was was less happy uh, with how it went. <laughs> uh, you mentioned the Harriet Harman interview. Yes, she, I didn't get it, to be fair to her, I didn't get any complaint from her, you know, but I did, I probably sort of went for her harder than anyone, actually. Also, somebody won't be remembered now, but, oh, Jacob Rees-Mogg's father, what's his name, William Rees-Mogg, who was editor of the town, so I thought it was a real sort of shyster, actually. And then one I got in... Uh, uh, the one I got tons of flack for, because, of course, the arrival of Twitter meant that suddenly, suddenly, I'm getting attacked from all sides. I was nasty about Rafa Nadal, tennis player. It turns out he has a million followers, all of whom took the trouble to tweet me and say, I hope you get cancer of the cunt. <laughs> I mean, that's a bit odd, isn't it? But somebody told me that Elton John had used that line. Is it a standard line on Twitter? I haven't had it before. <laughs> no, no. Oh, OK. Maybe you're not going to hear it now. <laughs> I mean, maybe let's let's see how this podcast goes, Lily, <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> before you know it. But I suppose, is it quite rare to get kicked back from the subject after the interview, personally? Quite rare, yes. One who did rather oddly was Art Garfunkel, who rang me practically in tears and said that he was never going to give another concert again and I'd been, I'd ruined his life and blah, blah. People sort of say how you must be so embarrassed meeting them at parties or... I'm not, you know, I mean, I think it's the job, actually. And then, I suppose, moving on to... Uh, the diary you wrote for The Spectator when you left The Sunday Times. Mm. That managed to also cause a, a bit of a stir, I suppose, just in, in, in the media world. Oh, yes, <laughs> OK. And that's because um, you wrote about how you've been sacked. Yeah. And sometimes people like to, I suppose, put a gloss on these things. Oh, yes. Um, well, actually, somebody told me subsequently I should not have used the word sacked because apparently that does mean something specific. It means that you've been found guilty of something whereas actually it was a case that I had a rolling contract and she said 
and we finished it, you know. So I wasn't sacked, I was whatever the current expression is, let go or something. <laughs> Contract not renewed, okay, uh, for yeah. perhaps to create differences. But yeah, you, you talked a bit about the Sunday Times and I suppose how you perceived it may have changed over the past couple of years and talked about how you didn't really want to, to write for clicks. Um, yeah, and, absolutely. And you felt some of the, I suppose, some of the subjects you've been asked to interview. So there was Jordan, Katie Price. I didn't mind doing her, yeah. actually. but um, you, you minded being asked to call her a feminist in your copy? Yes. <laughs> and I, I thought, how come? But actually, it was even worse than that. Eleanor Mills said, she'd actually written in this sentence saying... As a feminist, I totally approve of Katie Price. I mean, there were two things there. A, I wasn't saying I totally approve. But also, I I wouldn't go around saying uh, as a feminist. You know, I mean, we could argue till the cows came home about whether I am or not, but it's not a phrase I would ever use. And I said, you've got to take it out or or just use a different byline. I mean, she could have made up a byline. So, well, we were on bad terms the whole way through. But also, I mean, actually, the world of interviewing has changed. It's now so heavily mediated by PRs, and almost you have a sort of contract beforehand about, you know, he will talk about his first wife but not his second or whatever. And actually... It's sort of no fun anymore, in a way. I mean, it's... Well, partly it's that I'm old and I've got no patience with it. But when I started, you could, you know, you could have real conversations with people. And and now it's all just pre... It's almost pre-planned, a lot of those. Do you think if you were starting out now, mm. you wouldn't have the same type of career as, as you've had? No, I don't know barriers. what I'd do if I... Because the other thing is, you know, for most of my life, I've, I've always said to young people, go into journalism and it's a great career. But, I mean, now they're so ripped off, all this business of in, unpaid interns doing all the work and and not getting much money. And also this terrible thing of having to write for clicks, which is utterly pointless, isn't it? I suppose the counter to that would be, you know, if, if an article is interesting, it will go viral of its own accord, um, you know, if it has yeah. interesting quotes in it. But did you feel that the focus is more on trying to find individuals that have large social media followings yeah so they... absolutely absolutely uh, nick grimshaw was one that you mentioned yes but i mean it's happened i i probably naively didn't realize you know why i was interviewing these people but that uh, that was absolutely true but also you know my really good interviews which are, were in the ni- 90s was my great de- decade they were terribly long by today's standards. I mean, minimum 4,000, 5,000, sometimes 6,000 words. And I don't think there's anyone who publishes a 6,000-word interview anymore. And they expect them just to be these little sort of nuggets of sound bites. And you talked about going freelance uh, then at 74, not to give away your age again, but I believe you're now yes, 75, if I, I worked out correctly on, on the way here. Yes, well done. Um, how have you found, um, I mean, some would just think that people want to retire at this point. I mean, like, so, are yeah, you, well, you see I yourself still as a jobbing journalist? Yeah, I, I was, and also it was incredibly interesting when I, because I put it on Twitter, I, you know, I'm, I'm, I've been sacked, I'm up for work. And... The real surprise, the shock, to me shocking surprise, was that very few people... I got plenty of requests for book reviews, which I'm good at. 
but not many requests for interviews and then dozens of requests for travel articles and I I mean I'm a really bad travel writer it's just not my thing you know so is that because you're supposed to be nice I don't know I mean but if you also, get free holiday I, I can't do sort of descriptive prose very much at all you know but also I now realize now I'm 75 I can admit I hate traveling <laughs> I've sort of kept quiet about that for a long time. <laughs> so, so there's a limit to how far you can go in this parade. Yes, and I hate airports and just... And, you know, and actually it's really funny because several people have said to me, what's your bucket list? Well, first of all, I never knew what that expression meant, but it was explained to me. It was the things you wanted to do before you died. And they said, and these were travel letters saying, where do you want to go? And I've replied absolutely consistently to all of them. I want to go to the Silly Isles. And none of them want the Silly Isles. They all say, oh, we could send it to the Seychelles or the Maldives. No, I want the Silly Isles. <laughs> and actually, my, my daughter and son-in-law are taking me to it. We've given up on getting a freebie. My, my family are taking me there. Now, I just just to kind of finish the podcast in the final section, I, you touched on it a bit already, and, and I understand that there's a difference between a broadcast interview to a print interview. Yeah. But John Humphreys, when he left the Today programme, yeah. warned that he thought that politicians and public figures were receiving less scrutiny these days. Absolutely. And there'd been this trend to almost being picky about what interviews. And I was wondering if you Yes, absolutely. I mean, obviously I'm not... in politics are all that but I mean it's become very obvious on today and other political programs that they ministers just refuse to come on don't they and of course they have that right and in a way I think they're right I mean why uh, well actually I was I had huge respect for John Humphreys and it's tragic to me that he's gone and I really hate Nick Ronson why well, he it's it's with him. It's more like a debating society. Let me tell you what you're doing wrong, and all that. And he has these terrible tricks where he says, "Oh, we're rather short of time. I must hurry on." And then he proceeds to talk for about ten minutes, and nobody ever gets to answer anything. The the one who's really good is Laura Kunzberg. I think she's brilliant. Now, you interviewed Boris Johnson back in the day. Yes. And at the time, you described yourself as a member of his fan club. Uh, well, in inverted commas, and, and clearly you, you didn't mean that. I, I didn't get the impression you meant you were going to vote for him forevermore. Um, but you seem to be charmed by him. Well, um, that was... Actually, I interviewed him twice, and the first time was charmed by him to an extent I'm really embarrassed to think about now. You know. And he sent me long emails with Latin you know, explaining Latin words and things. But I suppose he had more time in those days. That was when he was, what, editor of Spectator, I suppose. And not, then, not a full-time job. <laughs> and then I interviewed him when he was mayor of London. And by then, I don't know, I, had a, I was more suspicious. I mean, I went in and gave a very naive interview the first time, I have to say, and didn't sort of realise that he could lie. And then by the second time I interviewed him, I realised. Yes, so so that description no longer fits. No, <laughs> no. If there's, in terms of people who you still like to interview, is there anyone who, who, on your list who you haven't yet got round to? 
Oh, God. I mean, well, you know, I spent half my life trying to interview Lucian Freud, and then he died. The other person who so much want to interview but won't is Rupert Murdoch. And I think, you know, given how incredibly important Rupert Murdoch has been in my lifetime in all sorts of ways, he's incredibly little interviewed. I mean, we know nothing, really. And so he would be top of my wishes, although it might be... Well, I no, I better not say. <laughs> he, he might, <laughs> he might be too old. I don't know. And um, how do you go about trying to pursue these figures for an interview? Because often it's with a publication, but yeah. there also seems to be a certain, I suppose, badge of honour as to surviving a Lynn Barber interview. Yeah. So, so do you go personally to approach people? Or bit of both, actually. I mean, when I was on the Independent on Sunday, I think. Yeah, actually, I think people were almost queuing up to be... Well, actors were always saying, oh, no, we wouldn't like that. But, I mean, that's fine, because I don't like interviewing actors. But it wasn't hard to get people. But the other trouble is I'm quite lazy, you know. I don't pursue people as hard as... If they say no, I leave it at that, basically. (laughs) And, And then just two final questions to finish the podcast, which is, firstly, what is the worst advice you've ever been given if, if you if you can recall well I suppose when I was young people sort of said oh try and charm him and wear your shortest skirt and things and actually that's a real no-no even when I was young and pretty because the sort of person that you're coming on to as being young and pretty has a zillion girls coming on to them being young and pretty you know And actually, I found... I was very worried at one stage of my life, probably in my 40s, the the age question seemed to loom large, and I was sort of nervous of interviewing people younger than me and especially asking them about their sex lives because it seemed a bit sort of goatish or something, you know. Whereas I think actually now my extreme old age actually works quite well, um, that they sort of feel that... You know, I'm not a threat, and I'm... uh, Anyway, but, yeah, somebody once said something to me, like, cross your, you know, wear that skirt and cross your legs a lot. That was wrong, you know. And the final thing which we're asking everyone at the moment, um, which is, what have you changed your mind on in the last year? And it it can be anything, no no matter how big or small. Well, I have slightly opened my mind to fish, I will now eat Dover Soul where I wouldn't eat anything of a fishy nature before. <laughs> Is that all? It's a journey. <laughs> Thank you, Lynn. Okay. Thanks for listening. And if you'd like to send us your feedback on this podcast or any of our many podcasts, please do get in touch. Just email us at podcast at spectator.co.uk. Hold up. 